Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for today's very special episode of TCCP is none other than Lancashire and Thunder wicketkeeper Ellie Threlkeld. So Ellie, first things first, thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome you on for a chat about all things county and of course regional crickets. I've got to ask, how's your day been so far? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's been been pretty good. It's my day off today, so I just took the dog on a nice big walk. Um, so yeah, not really not really got much on today, which is which is nice. So yeah. Certainly sounds like it. Yeah, very nice way to to start the morning. But it's freezing, isn't it, here in the UK at the moment? You know, it's been cold, it's been wet, it's been miserable. Everybody's ill. That's the other thing. I mean, for those who who can't tell, I've got a very heavy cold today. So apologies in advance if I sound a little bit stranger than usual. But yeah, it's just that funny time of year, isn't it, to be honest? Everybody's kind of got colds and the flu and it's freezing. It's not the, the best time of year, is it, to be honest? No, it sounds like classic January, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, I'm sure the season will fly around and uh, we'll soon be in the summer, so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, absolutely. I think, to be honest, that's a, a feeling and a sentiment which is reflected up and down the country. I mean, I, I'm certainly feeling that. I can't wait for the 5th of April and for county cricket to be back and, yeah, for the sunshine to be back as well. Some warm weather. Instead of looking out and seeing frost, the occasional bit of snow and, yeah, a load of, of rain as well it does make a difference, doesn't it? once we get into spring and, of course, the start of the summer. But, Ellie, before we, we touch upon the, the main content for today's podcast, actually, which will, of course, revolve around the likes of Lancashire, the Thunder, and, of course, your time spent with the England A-team as well, I just wanted to talk about something a little bit topical just to kickstart things for today's podcast because yesterday, on the 10th of January, we had a massive piece of news, actually, coming from your county of Lancashire, which involved a massive six-figure sum for women's and girls' crickets in the region as a result of a partnership and some investments from Sports Break and Inspire Sports. So in terms of that funding, first and foremost, how brilliant is that for girls' crickets in Lancashire? Yeah, it's massive. I think um, Sports Breaks have been uh, one of our sponsors for a couple of years now and they've been amazing. Um, And yeah, it shows sort of their commitment to us that they're not just investing in us, but also the next generation and women and girls cricket across across the region as well, which um, essentially will give girls and, and women more opportunity to play, but also um, help us produce the next the next best cricketers, which, um, yeah, is brilliant for the region and, and, and our team. It certainly is. And yes, I just thought that's fantastic news, to be honest. I did see that on Twitter and I was reminded of it by my incredible girlfriend, Paige. Shout out to Paige. Absolutely fantastic, fantastic person is Paige. And very lucky to call her my girlfriend. So, yeah, just thought I'd, I'd bring that up because she did remind me to to mention that. But, yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it, to be honest, for, for cricket in the region. And increased investments, increased funding is obviously a massive thing, isn't it? It's going to produce that next generation of cricketers. And hopefully one day it will pay off, won't it? And maybe, who knows, we can win a few World Cups, a few T20 World Cups as well, and become the, the dominant force in, in women's international cricket. But... Ellie, before we talk about international cricket and we talk about your time with England A and, of course, that tour to Australia, I wanted to transport you all the way back to the origins of your cricketing story, if I may. So what are your first ever memories of cricket, either playing or watching this simply magnificent game? 
first memories of playing the game um, were in the back garden with my brother. Um, obviously, really, really competitive, as you can imagine. Um, and yeah, sort of just he grew up playing cricket and football, so I just sort of copied him really and played played both sports. Um, and yeah, playing in the garden with him, and then going to our local club, which was Rainford. He played in the Liverpool comp, and sort of yeah, just picked a bat and a ball up whilst watching him on the side as well. And um, there's a group of us who all had sort of older brothers who played, which was nice. Um, and yeah, just just carried on through there really. And to be honest, I was always more football growing up, but um, yeah, cricket seemed to to be sort of my main sport in the end. And I had to make a decision when I was 18 which which sport to go with, and and went with cricket, which obviously is now sort of my full time job. So um, yeah, very grateful to be in the position I'm in, but looks like I made made a good decision in the end. <laughs> well, to be honest, Ellie, I think it has paid off, hasn't it? To be honest, in the the years that have followed, you've made it now in the professional game and captaining your side as well, which must be a tremendous honour, which of course we will touch upon in a lot more detail as the podcast progresses. But you mentioned in those early years that choice between football and cricket. And before we actually touch upon that in a bit more detail, first and foremost, do you think that's actually helped your cricket? Because this is something which we've discussed a lot on this podcast in terms of young cricketers almost focusing solely on crickets. A lot of people think that's the, the wrong approach when you're a child, to be honest, you should be playing multiple sports. So in terms of, of that kind of philosophy and that school of thinking, would you subscribe to that in terms of young cricketers playing multiple sports like football, like rugby, like tennis, netball, stuff like that? Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, like growing up, like I said, I was always more football and like I, all I ever wanted was to be a professional footballer. But obviously sort of that didn't work out and that sort of changed a little bit as I got older and then all of a sudden I wanted to be a professional cricketer and I was lucky in the fact that there was the potential option for both at one point and I think yeah that's that's massive for for youngsters isn't it just giving them opportunities to play all sports and sometimes um like people would be de- better suited to different things and there's definitely a lot of crossover between sports as well in in a lot of ways um from both a skill point of view and also like a character point of view as well I think football taught me a lot as as a person and um, as a leader and made me sort of the character I am today I think so um, yeah very grateful for those experiences and yeah I was definitely much fitter when I played both sports got to work a lot harder now. <laughs> I'm not surprised by that to be honest because I used to play a lot of football obviously not to that level to be honest playing for Liverpool and, and Wigan in your case Ellie I just played for a local team called Henley Forest but yeah it's a, a very demanding sport isn't it football in terms of those fitness levels and I say that's a goalkeeper. It's very, very different compared to to the world of cricket. But in terms of those experiences, then you mentioned about the the crossover of skills and characteristics between the two sports. It's something which I discussed with with Rob Keogh on this podcast because he used to play in the Luton Town Academy. What kind of skills and attributes and qualities do you think can cross over between the two sports, having played both to a very good standard? Um, I think, well, probably the obvious one's fitness. Um, like football made me a pretty well-rounded athlete. Um, and yeah, so that, that obviously transferred into my cricket and, and made it easier to turn up on fitness testing day and do all right. <laughs> I've got to work a lot harder at that now. Um, but yeah, other things sort of like taught me sort of professionalism and, at a young age and um, coming in every day and doing the right things. And yeah, um, being good around the group, being part of a team. Um, I captained a little bit as well from a, from a young age and obviously that, that looks different in different sports but um, 
yeah, still teaches you sort of leadership qualities. Um, and yeah, I always found that the football dressing room to be a little bit more brutal, to be honest. Um, and yeah, sort of toughened my character up a, a little bit, I think, which obviously standing me in good stead for, for, for now being a professional athlete, but also sort of playing in, in men's dressing rooms as well, growing up playing men's cricket. Um, so yeah, like lo- lots of different things in different ways, really, but um, not so much from a skill point of view. Football is obviously very different to cricket, but um, I often found as well cricket being quite a, a mentally sort of taxing sport, football of of a weekend to just give me that release and, and go and run around for 90 minutes and kick a ball, which was great fun. So very different, but um, yeah, I love doing both at the same time. Oh, well, I'm really glad to hear that, to be honest, because they are both brilliant sports. Obviously, I'm going to say that as the host of the County Cricket Podcast, very biased when it comes to cricket. This is my my number one sport, but football's great. It, it really is. It's It's difficult at times and you do have your low moments in football, but for the most part, if you can just have fun playing football, it really is just a, a very, very special sport. So glad to hear that you've got such great memories, to be honest, from your time playing football. And in terms of those memories, just before we get on to our cricket discussion in a bit more detail, what do you say was your favourite memory from your time playing football for the likes of Liverpool and Wigan Athletic? Um, favourite memory is probably winning the Youth FA Cup with Liverpool, um, which, oh yeah, it was pretty special playing um in a final at Milton Keynes Stadium and um, yeah, as a youngster, that that was pretty special. Um, and also, I think like leaving Liverpool is one of the hardest things I ever did. Just growing up as, as a massive Liverpool fan, it felt like the worst thing I ever did to leave. Um, but yeah, I was I was at an age where I was either then going to be offered a reserve contract the year after or I, would, I wouldn't have been. Um, and at this point, I was spending a lot of time on the sidelines because I was playing a lot of cricket in in the winter as well. Um, and yeah, it was, I was finding it really hard to get into the starting eleven and training quite a few times a week to not play the weekend was really frustrating. And like we just discussed, all I wanted to do was just enjoy my football. And um, yeah, I ended up moving to Wigan Athletic for a few seasons, and that was like one of the best things I ever did in the end. Obviously, like I said, tough to, to leave Liverpool, the club I've, I've grown up following, but. Um, I've got some really, really great memories of, of playing for Wigan with a great group of girls and um, yeah, just getting that game time and just really going back to enjoying my football and, and feeling like a really young kid again, just playing over weekend and, and really enjoying it. So yeah, I've got a lot of fond memories, but um, yeah. Well, it certainly sounds like it and yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? In, in particular, representing your, your childhood club as well, that must be incredibly special. I mean, I can't say that when it comes to Arsenal. I was absolutely nowhere near that level. And I don't think I ever will be, to be honest, at the age of 22. But it's a massive achievement. And I completely understand the the feeling there and the sentiments of it being difficult because that's everyone's dream, isn't it? When you're growing up, you want to represent that club. But obviously, you've, you've made the right decision in the years that followed. And in terms of that decision of choosing between cricket and football, what were the reasons behind that? What do you think was the the ultimate factor behind you going all in on crickets as opposed to to staying in football? Um, I think sort of my ability really was made the decision for me. I think I was I was doing better at cricket at the time, so I think it would have been silly not to to go down that path. Um, at the time, I was part of an England academy as well, so I was sort of trying to strive for that next level and going on tours with them, which was obviously a brilliant experience. So I remember going to Sri Lanka on my first my first cricket tour, which was while I was still playing at Liverpool. Um, 
and yeah like experiences like that like as a youngster just makes you feel like oh i've got to stick with this there's something in this sort of thing um and like i said i was obviously spending a lot of time on the sidelines playing playing football so i think yeah my my ability in in and my cricket journey sort of made that decision for me well fair enough and i think it's safe to say that in the years that followed it's definitely paid off hasn't it to be honest i mean it has definitely been the right choice in hindsight. And in terms of those early and formative cricketing years then, Ellie, just to get the conversation back on track to the subject of the podcast, which is, of course, cricket. In terms of those early years, did you have any idols, any icons, any role models in the game who you tried to emulate in those early years, per se? I get asked this question a lot, actually, and I always talk about, like, there was definitely not really any female role models for me growing up with cricket. Um, first sort of memories of that would be watching the England girls and watching Charlotte Edwards and Sarah Taylor play. Um, but, yeah, that was probably a bit later on in my journey. I remember probably the first memory of watching cricket was the 05 Ashes. So people are part of that team, really. But obviously, yeah, I think... Weirdly, we we were chatting about this before, weren't we? My my role model I remember growing up was Stephen Gerrard. All I wanted to do was be like Stephen Gerrard and wanted to be a professional footballer. I wanted to be like him. Um, and yeah, I love the way he went about his leadership and his sort of attachment to Liverpool, just like everything he stood for. I just loved it. Um, so yeah, quite a few different people. I think more recently role models like Josh Butler and love watching Ben Folks keep um yeah so obviously watch a lot more cricket now than I did when I was younger um but yeah I think for me Ben Folks is the best the best around and I love watching him keep and um if I can yeah be anything like him I'll be be on the right path (laughs) he is brilliant isn't he to be honest and he is on that plane to India obviously there's a lot of talk about whether or not he'll take the gloves given Bairstow's return to the test side in the past 12 months but yeah he's an incredible keeper and this might be a difficult question, to be honest, Ellie, but I ask this a lot on the podcast, right? If you could have a, a dream net session, right, you've gone hour with any cricketer in the history of this wonderful game, who do you select for that net session? Uh, I think I'd pick Josh Butler, to be honest. I think, obviously, one of the best white ball players in the world um, and similar disciplines to me. So I think, yeah, I think I'd be able to learn a lot in that hour. Um and yeah, like we just spoke about, another role model of mine. And um, yeah, I love the way he goes about his cricket. And um, I think especially from a batting point of view, I think uh, um, something I'm trying to develop a lot myself, I think there's no one better to learn from. Absolutely, yes. He's he's missed the 360, isn't he? Joss Butler. Mm. He's got all the sweeps, all the scoop shots. He really is just a fantastic player, is Joss. And yeah, to be honest, not many finer players to to learn from. So, yeah, fair enough. That is a wonderful, wonderful choice. And, of course, Joss plays for, for a certain club by the name of, of Lancashire County Cricket Club, which just happens to be your local club, doesn't it, Ellie? And, uh, of course, the club which you've played for your entire life at in terms of your cricket journey. So, aside from those early days spent at Rainford Cricket Club up near Widnes, how did that opportunity at Lancashire first materialise? When did you first get the opportunity to represent the Red Rose? Um, I remember going to a, my first ever trial and I think I was sort of like nine or ten. I think the age group was was under tens or elevens at the time. Um, so yeah, I went to this trial, turned up in my, in my whites, obviously, as you do when you're a kid and you're dead keen. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I turned up at this trial and, and must have done all right because got selected and then um, yeah, I was part of that sort of system ever since and came up through the age groups. Started wicket keeping at 
maybe 13, 14, maybe. Um, yeah, I used to start off bowling, bowling quite quick and then, um, yeah, quickly got banned from bowling and then, uh, yeah, ended up having to keep wicket. So, um, yeah, good decision in the end though, I think. And then, yeah, came right through that system and made my senior debut at, um, do you know what, I don't even know what age I was, but I remember it being at Liverpool Cricket Club, I think, um, which obviously was pretty cool, being playing in the Liverpool comp and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and then I've been part of that ever since. And obviously now the new domestic structure. So three years ago, I think it was when it, that professionalised, I was lucky enough to be one of the, the first professional contracted players there. So, um, yeah, I've been part of the system ever since, really. And it's been some journey, hasn't it? To be honest, from those early days, that trial at Lanks and obviously coming up through the the system in the northwest to ultimately captaining the side, which must have been a tremendous honour. And we will touch upon that in due course. But just before we do, you mentioned there about wicket keeping, because that's very interesting that you mentioned that. You actually started off as a seam bowler as opposed to a keeper. It isn't something which we hear very often on this podcast. So in terms of that journey into wicket keeping, how did that transpire? Why did you change from from bowling seam to donning the gloves and becoming a specialist keeper? Um, I think, to be honest, I was um, all, like, yeah, like I said, I was, I was always a bowler and then, um, yeah, bowling wasn't really going as well as I was hoping it was going to go and just then started focusing a bit more on my batting and obviously was fielding and um, we used to play in these competitions um, at like Malvern College and places like that where you'd go away for sort of four or five days and stay over um, and they'd be a, a a place where you'd give people opportunities and people who wouldn't quite get as many overs in other games, like would, would do different disciplines sort of thing. Um, and our wicketkeeper got injured. So um, I had a little go and, and absolutely loved it. I think what drew me to it was a little bit the the fact you're always involved. Like I absolutely loved that. Um, so yeah, I loved it and um, just decided to, to stick with it really and, and work pretty hard from there and realised that I was quite natural in the way I moved as well. So I feel like, um, yeah, now I'm naturally better at wicket-keeping than I am batting. And um, yeah, pretty glad I did make that decision in the end. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, it's it's paid off, hasn't it, in the years that followed. And it's interesting you mentioned there, actually, about that concept of always being involved in the game, because that is something which crops up time and time and time again on this podcast. It's something which is almost a, a shared kind of sentiment between keepers. It is that feeling of always being involved in the game and that ability to to change the game with every single delivery because you've got to be on it from ball one right until the end. And yes, you can make that argument for any of the fielding positions, but it, it's a bit like a goalkeeper in football, isn't it, to be honest? If a keeper makes a mistake, it's amplified. Everybody notices. If you drop a catch, it's like, well, they should have taken that because they've got the gloves on. And all of a sudden, you do have that additional pressure. You do have that additional spotlight on you. But at the same time, you have almost got that feeling of being the, the centre stage character, which at the same time is very, very rewarding. And in terms of those more rewarding aspects of the discipline itself, Ellie, what is your favourite aspect of being a keeper? Is it in terms of standing up to the spin? Is it a case of taking these incredible diving catches? Is it that sentiment of always being involved in the game and being a real difference maker on a cricket field? What is it about the art of wicket-keeping itself which drew you in in the first place and has kept you coming back ever since? 
Yeah, I think um, I do spend a lot of my time up to the stumps, which is probably my favourite aspect of, of wicket-keeping. Um, yeah, so that and probably, yeah, like we just spoke about, always being involved and people talk about the keeper being the heartbeat of the team and, and, and I love that. I think sort of stand by that and try and give the team as much energy as I can. And um, yeah, I just I just love it. I feel like it's, it's, yeah, you're always involved and you can give the team energy and like you said, you can affect the game at any moment and um, yeah, you've got to be switched on for a long period of time, but there's there's also plenty of opportunities you, you've got to affect the game, which is which is quite special, I think. It certainly is. And of course, that's a positive and a negative at times, isn't it? Because you do have that additional pressure on your shoulders as a result of that. But I think wicket keepers, to be honest, as characters are a bit different. So they're usually a bit more energetic. They're usually a bit more lively. Obviously, a lot of them chirp as well. You know, in the opponent's ear, they're giving it a bit of chat and maybe the occasional sledge. But as we've mentioned, you're a difference maker. You are the heartbeat of the team and a lot of decisions come through the wicketkeeper. And in terms of the more difficult aspect, Ellie, just before we talk in a bit more detail about Lancashire and your time for the Thunder, what do you think are the tougher elements of being a wicketkeeper? What do you think is the, the toughest aspect of this particular discipline on a cricket pitch? Um, I'd probably say something I always struggled a little bit with growing up was um, just dealing with mistakes. I think, like you said, the spotlight's a little bit on you when, when you do make a mistake. And I mean, I guess you could say that about everything in cricket, but um, being able to park that and still still be able to perform for the next, you might still have, you might be the first ball of a game and you've got to keep for 50 overs. So, um, yeah, the ability to focus on each ball um, and park mistakes is, is something I've had to work pretty hard on. Um, and also probably the whole debate now, what's going on in, in the media about, like, do you need to be able to bat well as a wicketkeeper? Of course you do. Um, and that's, again, something that I've had to work really, really hard on and still I'm working really hard on is my batting. Um, so, yeah, you, 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 there's no room to just be a wicketkeeper anymore. You've got to be, you've got to be um, an all-rounder. So, um, yeah, that's, that's something I'm, I'm really trying to work hard on and um, I've still got aspirations to play for England and that's ultimately what's going to get me there. So, Well, it certainly will because that's what we're seeing, isn't it, in the modern game. It's the wicketkeeper batter. It's no longer just the specialist keeper. You do have to have a weight of runs behind your name, but... It's interesting there, actually, you mentioned about making those mistakes because everybody makes mistakes in the game of cricket. But as we've mentioned throughout this discussion so far, as a keeper, it is amplified. It's a bit like a goalkeeper making a faux pas and, you know, conceding a bad goal in football. In terms of those moments where you do make a mistake, so it might be a misstumping, it might be a dropped catch. In terms of those moments on the cricket field where you do make mistakes, do you have any tactics, any strategies which you can employ on the cricket field to just get yourself back into the game and maintain your composure in the heat of battle on the cricket field? Yeah, I think sort of firstly, like acceptance is massive. I think if you think you're going to go a whole cricket career without making mistakes, um, like obviously they're going to happen. It's inevitable. So I think, yeah, accepting that they are going to happen is massive and um, they're just part of the game. So embracing that, embracing failure and making sure you just learn from it, really. I think um, if I miss something behind the stumps, it's usually due to something technical. So just quickly identifying what that is and, and being able to just, yeah, park it. It's easier said than done, but um, just making sure I don't make that mistake again, really. Um and I think for a lot of a lot of 
what I find beneficial in cricket is just being as relaxed as possible. Um, so I use some like deep breathing techniques um, during games and um, post mistakes. They're massive to just relax my body again. And um, yeah, I think tension as a keeper is the enemy. So just making sure I've got no tension in my hands. And that's, again, easier said than done after a mistake, but making sure I'm nice and relaxed and, and ready to go again. And that's crucial, isn't it, to be honest? to have that coolness, that calmness, that composure. When you think of the the best keepers, right, I think of two examples right off the bat, MS Dhoni and Sarah Taylor. You always looked at those two and they would just be the absolute personification of calmness. They'd be the, the most relaxed person on the cricket field. Now, inside, that might have been completely different when the pressure's on and internally they might have been thinking a million different things. But in terms of their body language, the way in which they carried themselves, they look like the most composed people that you could ever imagine. And that is why they were absolute masters of their craft. And it's interesting you mentioned there about breathing techniques, just something else I wanted to touch upon because I've spoken about it very recently on this podcast with Chris Dent is meditation. And I just wanted to ask Ellie, is this something which you've ever employed in either crickets or, or just your wider life in general in order to maintain that calmness? Is that something which you've ever employed or potentially would employ in terms of of your cricket yeah definitely I think um I'd use it in everyday life I think maybe not consistently but um just getting better at recognizing them times when I'm a little bit overloaded got a lot going on just need to take a bit of time out and feel a little bit more present um so yeah just use it as and when I feel like I need to really um and yeah that can also look different for everybody it doesn't mean you have to sit in in a dark room on a cushion and do do it like you would stereotypically think meditation should be like. I think sometimes for me, just going out for a walk with a dog with no headphones, no nothing, no distractions, that's just as beneficial as well. So almost finding what works for you, there's different sort of forms of meditation. Um, I'm quite into to my yoga as well, which again, like um, quite similar, like you, you, you're not, you're not sat particularly meditating, but it's probably a form of meditation and just, yeah, allows you sort of to connect a little bit back to, to the present moment and, um, yeah, just feel a little bit more calm and connected. Absolutely. And again, I think that's actually another great tactic, to be honest, which has come up on the podcast before, because yoga is about breathing technique as well, isn't it? We mentioned that beforehand, but it's a great way to to just calm yourself when things are getting a bit overwhelming. And the other crucial thing as well, of course, which we mention an awful lot on this platform, is individuality. You know, you've got to tailor it to yourself. Just because something might work for someone else doesn't necessarily mean that it'll have the same benefits for you. You've got to find that. And it's something which can take a lot of time. It's something which you've got to experience. But once you've found something which works, it really does make a massive difference because, Ellie, you'll be able to obviously relate to this a lot more than I can, right? I just sit and watch cricket as opposed to actually being out there. But in terms of those moments when times are tough and cricket is such a mentally sapping and draining game at times, you do need something to remain present, don't you? And just take yourself away from those feelings revolving around the game. So in terms of, of just one final piece of advice from the, the mental and psychological side of things, what advice would you give to to young cricketers in order to remain present and just prevent those kind of feelings and those sentiments from getting overwhelming when it comes to their cricket? 
I think, yeah, just going to back to that acceptance piece, I think cricket's ultimately a game like where you have to deal with failure. I think if you look at the best players in the world, they still probably have more bad or average days than they have really, really good days. And that's just the nature of the sport. So I think the quicker you can accept that and, and learn to deal with failure, the, the better you'll get and the more level you'll be, I think. Otherwise, the highs can be really, really high and the lows can be really, really low. Um, and yeah, it's obviously easier said than done. Um, but yeah, trying to stay as level as possible. And that's why not just meditation, but other aspects of your life are so important. Like um, making sure you are spending time with family and friends, doing other things, other hobbies. doesn't necessarily have to be other sports, but um, just making sure you've got other stuff going on. Because I think I've definitely been there where the game can really, really consume you and it can become everything. And um, yeah, like I said, then lows can be really, really low. So making sure you can stay as level as possible and keep enjoying the game. And I think that's wonderful advice, to be honest. In terms of first and foremost, that support network, it's it's crucial, not just in cricket, you know, to have friends, to have family, to have people who have got your back in those dark times. And of course, having these releases, because cricket is a wonderful sport. And to be honest, for the past 16 years of my life, that is worrying to think about, to be honest, but 16 years of my life, I've been consumed by cricket. I absolutely love this sport. It's how I spend my summers, it's how I spend my winters, watching the Big Bash, watching the Super Smash, watching all these bilateral series. My life is very much revolved around cricket, but you do need these releases. And for you personally, Ellie, in terms of those releases outside of the game, what do you kind of do for fun? I know that's a bit of a of a strange question, but obviously cricket doesn't just you know consume your entire life. So in terms of those days where you do just need to take a step back and almost take a step away from the game. How do you just sit back and relax? Um, I think the first thing that springs to mind is taking my dog to the beach. I think that's one of the things that really makes me feel nice and present and nice and calm. Um, So yeah, I do that, spend a lot of time with family and friends. Um, I'm also doing sort of a sports psych applied practice as well. So I've got a lot going on with that. So I can always get my teeth into a bit of work as well. and love going out drinking coffee um and going for brunch so when when i've got a free morning that's usually where you'll find me in a cafe or or at the beach with my dog <laughs> fair enough i mean i can't say i can relate to that here in the midlands we, we're struggling to find a beach and to be honest unless you count the edgebaston beach which we have at finals day but other than that yeah we're landlocked so can't exactly take any pets to the beach here in the midlands but no some very very nice strategies there to be honest in terms of just taking that time away and remaining present because cricket is a tough sport it really is it comes back to that old adage of it's 90% mental and 10% physical but cricket really is like that it's a game which is won or lost in your head and in terms of failure as well I thought that was ever such an interesting piece to be honest Ellie because this is a stat which I've mentioned a lot on this podcast but you think of Sir Alistair Cook right he's the fifth all-time leading test run scorer in men's cricket, one of the greatest ever English cricketers. What do we define success by as an opener? We think of centuries, right? In Alistair Cook's career, he scored a century on average once every eight innings. So you think of all those fantastic moments which we remember him by in terms of those knocks at the MCG, the knocks in India, obviously the countless Ashes knocks here in the UK, and that's what we remember him for. But that only happened once out of eight occasions, that's 12.5% of his career. 
And that's what we remember him for. Not the other seven times out of eight when he didn't achieve that. So it's a great thing to actually look at in terms of redefining failure. If you are going to go on to become a great cricketer, failure doesn't define you. It's your good moments. It's your great days which make you a great cricketer. Because nobody remembers the golden ducks and the one or twos and the low scores. They remember the big scores, the match-defining knocks, the match-defining wins. And yeah, it's stuff like that, which I do think when it comes to the mental side of the game, it is something which you do have to train if you are to become a better cricketer. And aside from that discussion then, because I acknowledge that that's taken up a lot of the podcast, but it is fascinating, isn't it, in terms of the mental side of the game. Just to get back on track to our discussion about Lancashire and county cricket, in terms of your time in the Northwest so far, what do you say has been your real highlights from your time at Lancashire County Cricket Club? Um, I think the first thing that springs to mind is getting to our first finals day last summer. I think um, we've been a sort of developing team over the last few years and um, there's been a lot of frustrating moments and a lot of yeah growth and development there, but it's took a lot of time and I think... Um, yeah, to get to our first finals day was really special and um, shows that we're on, on the right tracks, I think. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing whether we can, can build on that this year. But I think, yeah, the feeling of getting there and um, almost winning the semi-final and, and giving it a good go was, uh, was yeah, pretty good and pretty special. And um, ultimately, that's what, what you, you play for and you train for is to try and win trophies and win games of cricket. So, um, yeah, I'm glad we, we managed to show that we could do that last year. And yeah, like I said, I'm I'm looking forward to, to to seeing how we go this year. Um, and I think, yeah, I can't not mention how brilliant Lancashire have been with um, providing sort of equal opportunities for, for us and, and the men as well and um, pre-season tours and um, giving us our own changing room and et cetera. Like loads of these things stick out as, as massive highlights as well. And um, yeah, grateful to the, to the club for all of their support with that. They are fantastic, aren't they? To be honest, Lancashire, they really have done a fantastic job in terms of that and also promoting the women's game as well. We see it all the time on the socials, don't we? Whether that's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube as well. They really are giving it the promotion that it deserves and the push that it deserves. So, yeah, a bit of a shout-out to Lanks, to be honest. I know we did mention that right at the start of the episode, but they really have been fantastic supporters of the women's game, and it will pay off in the end. Trophies, to be honest, probably are not that far off heading into the future, and... In terms of that first finals day, Ellie, just to talk about that in a bit more detail, first and foremost, in terms of that campaign, before finals day itself, how do you reflect on that particular campaign from both an individual and, of course, a, a team perspective? Um, yeah, from an individual perspective, I was pretty disappointed with my contributions with the bat, I think. Um and I think a lot of the girls would agree with that themselves. I think we were on the batting front. We were obviously a bit short of runs. Um, and we, I think we lost the first four of that competition at least. Um, and yeah, Greek was in a pretty tough place and it felt like we were never, ever going to win a game. And all of a sudden we won one and then in, in short format, especially momentum can be pretty key. And we sort of just went on a bit of a run of winning games and um, all of a sudden we were at, at New Road and we were like, how have we got here? <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was pretty special and to turn that around as well just shows so much resilience and character from the people in that dressing room and um, yeah, great group of people, great group of staff and um, probably yeah, deserved it in the end with, with that turnaround and it was yeah, pretty special to be a part of. 
I imagine it was, to be honest, because, as you mentioned, it was the Thunder's first finals day, wasn't it? Probably won't be the last, to be honest, because you've got a good chance of, of repeating it in 2024. But at the time, it's a massive achievement in particular, after a couple of difficult seasons in the years that have preceded it. So in terms of that day at New Road and, of course, that semi-final against the Vipers, what can you recall from that day, from that occasion, and just walking out onto that field, representing your home region and captaining the side? I mean, how special was that of a day in terms of finals day at New Road? Yeah, it was really special. And I think um, that's what we, we spoke about in the dressing room, was just trying to enjoy the day and um, trying to take it all in a little bit. And I think actually nothing changed, even though it was a finals day. It's just another game of cricket and to try and keep focusing on our processes and, and do the right things. And ultimately, if we do that, we'll, we'll have more chance of getting over the line. Um, and I think we did that. I think we we bowled we bowled pretty well to two to two England players who got going on diff, on a, a brilliant pitch and they were difficult to stop. Um, Danny Wyatt and Maya Boucher batted incredibly well that day. Um, and I think it was 190 they got, which obviously a pretty big score. Um, and I think we were 175 ish trying to trying to chase it. Um, so yeah, we we gave it a good go and um, we were probably in a winning position at one point. Um, so yeah, I was pretty proud of how the girls played and how they went about the whole day and um, a little bit of frustration as well because like I said, we were probably in a winning position at one point and to, to have beaten the Vipers in a semi-final who have, have been really successful in regional cricket over the last few years would have would have been extra special. But um, yeah, like I said, it was, it was great to, to get there and be there and to put that performance in. I think shows how far we've come over the last couple of years. It certainly does, and even just achieving that finals day in the first place is a massive achievement, isn't it? In particular, after that poor start, the comeback, and I get that it's disappointing, but the Vipers are a serious outfit, aren't they? To be honest, when it comes to regional cricket, they've got an incredible batting unit. The bowling lineup is fantastic as well, and yeah, they they were just the supreme outfits over the course of this season, but. Aside from that finals day, just another performance which I did want to touch upon, this is more in terms of an individual display, Ellie, is a certain knock against the Storm at Old Trafford in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy. And in terms of that day, in terms of that game, and obviously that partnership that you shared with Naomi Tatani, what can you recall from that day and, of course, that performance? Because that was pretty special, wasn't it? Yeah, I think from an individual point of view, um, I've worked so hard on my bat in these last couple of years and haven't quite seen it transfer into games yet, which has been really, really frustrating. Um, I felt last year there was times where I felt like I was feeling really good and, and didn't just quite get going and had a few 20s, a few 30s and, and didn't quite go on and, and kick on and get a big score, which um, is obviously something, yeah, I'd look to do this year. But to do that in the final game, I think, yeah, it was really special and a lot of what I've worked what I'd worked so hard on came into that performance as well. So individually, I was really pleased. Um, and I think we were 18 for three when I went into bat. So we were in a bit of a sticky position. <laughs> um, and to, yeah, to go on and, and get and rebuild from there. Um, credit to Naomi Datani as well, the way she played. And um, that partnership was pretty crucial. Um, and yeah, I think to win a game like that is always going to be special because you were sort of the underdogs, if you like, you were never expected to win from that position. So, um, yeah, it made it extra special. And I think um, that was uh, Paul Shaw's last game, our, our uh, head coach as well. So to sort of 
give him that sort of send off and he was always so passionate about his batting and um yeah he's pretty pleased with that win on on the last day of the season so yeah it was pretty good good win and hopefully yeah performance I can repeat a couple of times this year well fingers crossed of course and we shall discuss 2024 as we wrap up today's podcast in just a bit but it was a supreme batting display that and in terms of the partnership itself from 17 for three which as you mentioned a very very rickety start to put it lightly but 177 runs for the fourth wickets. It's the highest partnership in Thunder's history as well and completely changed the game. And in terms of that moment, Ellie, where you brought up that century, bear in mind that this is your childhood club. Of course, Lancashire is the region which you've represented your entire life and you're now captain the Thunder as well. What was that like to to raise the bat, take off the helmet and, and celebrate a century for this regional side? Yeah, it was it was really special. I think um, the sort of stuff you dream about when you're at Old Trafford, and obviously I'm biased, but I think Old Trafford's the best ground in the country. Um, and yeah, to do it at your home ground, and and do you know what was more special? I think seeing your mates and your coaches on the balcony and how pleased they were for you as well. I think for me especially, I think they've probably seen the hard work I've put in, and like I said, frustration with it not transferring too much into into the summer. I, I would have loved to have contributed more with the bat, but I think yeah, the the smiles on their faces and um, yeah, the chats I had with players and, and staff after the game to see how pleased other people were for me, I think um, was really special and shows sort of how close the group are and um, what a great group of people we've got. So yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, it really was and you should be tremendously proud of it as well. It was a special knock to, to round off the season and in terms of that season from an individual perspective, I know that you've mentioned there about the batting and maybe wanting to achieve a bit more with the bat, but Yet again, the Thunder's leading run scorer in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy with 287 runs at an average of 41. That is not bad going at all. And I completely understand the the mentality and the mindset of of wanting to score more runs and get more milestones. But yeah, two consecutive seasons as the side's leading run scorer. That is something which you can be very, very proud of, Elians. In terms of the 2023 season then as a whole, how do you reflect on it in terms of both an individual and a team perspective? Because I'm guessing from that passage, you would have liked to have achieved a bit more with the bats in particular in the Charlotte Edwards Cup. But in terms of the two competitions, in particular in that T20 comp, it wasn't a terrible season. So how do you reflect on and analyse both your performances and the team performances in this past season? Yeah, I think, like you say, the the fifty over stuff. I'm, um, I feel like I'm a bit more assured as a batter in that format, and uh, feel a lot more comfortable at the crease, and um, yeah, like a bit more time to build my innings and stuff like that. So um, definitely, the shorter format of the game will be where, well, it's definitely where my focus is is lying at the minute in the in the indoor nets, and um, yeah, hopefully leading into to this summer, I can score more runs in that format, and um, yeah, get up that batting order in the hundred as well. So. Um, yeah, I think, like you say, I had a decent season, but um, always sort of striving for more. I was pretty pleased with how my wicket-keeping went. felt I was pretty consistent with the gloves. Um, and yeah, I just want to contribute as much as I can to us winning games of cricket, really. And um, I think, yeah, that's definitely my mindset. Just always want to want to do more and, and do more for the team. Um, and from a team perspective, I was um, pretty pleased. I think um, we showed glimpses of really excellent cricket. Um probably repeating the same mistakes a few too many times if I'm being honest but I think um, 
yeah, I can definitely see definite improvement there. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really excited about this year. I think the girls have worked really hard over the winter on their skills, seen some definite improvements. Um, so yeah, I just I just think we're in a really exciting place, and it's it's now time for us to kick on and try and go and win some trophies. Absolutely, it would be lovely, wouldn't it? to be honest, for the Thunder, because it's been some journey, hasn't it? From that first season in the regionals to, to now, you can see a definite progression. And it would be lovely, to be honest, to see one of the, the Northern teams lift one of the trophies again. It really would be fantastic. So obviously myself and everybody involved at TCCPLE are wishing yourself and the girls all the best of luck heading into this upcoming season, because it's exciting, isn't it? To be honest, it's an exciting time for the Thunder and of course, this is the, the last season of the regional competitions. In 2025, we've got the emergence and the advent of Project Darwin, which could completely transform the landscape of these competitions. So when you think about it, it could be the last time that these trophies are actually won, a bit like with the Bob Willis Trophy in 2021. So yeah, it has all the hallmarks of a very, very intriguing campaign, to, to say the least. And Aside from the regional stuff then, just one other team which I did want to focus quite heavily on for today's podcast, Ellie, is the England A-side. Because for any cricketer, international cricket is the absolute dream, isn't it? It's what everybody plays the game for. You want to represent your country at the highest level possible. So first and foremost, in terms of that opportunity, when did you find out that you'd be going on that tour to Australia with the England A side? Um, I think it was a couple of months before before it was, yeah, we would be going. I think we were going after Christmas, um, found out probably, um, yeah, October, November time. And we had some camps in Loughborough before that Christmas period. Um, and then it was January we, we flew. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was in COVID times a little bit still as well. So it was pretty unique experience in that we had to isolate all over that Christmas um, my family had to move out of my house and stay in a hotel to make sure I didn't get COVID and all sorts was going on. Um, but yeah, no, to, to get that call was pretty special. And I think we, we got a call to say we were in a training group and then the squad would be picked from there. So those sessions in Loughborough before Christmas felt a little bit like a trial. <laughs> um, so yeah, they were, they, they were great. I learned a lot from them and the training was brilliant, but it was felt quite on edge and like, uh, you were being watched all, all time. Um, but yeah, to, to make that final squad, obviously, um, to go to, on a trip to Australia, a place I've never been to play cricket and somewhere I've always wanted to go to represent represent England was, um, yeah, like a dream come true, really. To be honest, it is it is the dream. And Australia, what a lovely place to go and play some cricket. Wouldn't mind being there right now, to be honest, given the, the weather in the UK. But yeah, that does sound like a very, very special moment in your career to date. And in terms of that moment when you found out you'd made the, the final squad for that tour, who was the first person that you told about the good news? Um, I rang my family straight away. I think, um, yeah, they've been like such a huge part of, of my journey um, and everything they gave up to, to help me to become a cricketer. I just think like you don't realise it when you're a kid, do you? But when, when you grow up a bit, you realise how much sacrifice they made for you and um how much time, energy, money and everything they've put into into me. So I'm obviously so grateful for them and um, they're still my biggest support network now. So yeah, they're definitely the first person I told and first people I told. And 
um, yeah, I soon had to tell them that they had to move out so that I didn't get COVID, which they <laughs> didn't go down too well. But um, like I said, again, sacrifice and, and doing the doing everything they can for me. They they did it without without um, even thinking. So yeah. Well, it's paid off, hasn't it? To be honest, in the end, that's the important thing, and it, it does come back to that support network, doesn't it? It's it's very important to to have that backing of of your family and your friends if you can. And in terms of that tour, again, what do you say was your your proudest moments from that particular series against Australia, representing the three lions? for England A, what was your, your particular highlight and favourite moments over in Australia? Um, I think it was the first game we played, to be honest. I think the first game against Australia A, um, just putting the kit on, knowing that you were going to go out and play against Australia, something that was like... So our series sort of mirrored the women's ashes. So you very much felt a part of that and you were out there with the full squad and... Um, just that feeling that you were, like, I felt like I was in touching distance of playing for England. And that was obviously something I've worked so hard to, it's always been the dream. So to, to feel you were that close was just amazing. Um, and yeah, the games were brilliant and really competitive um, on the wrong side of a couple of results. But um, yeah, it's just a dream come true to be out there to play and to, yeah, to put that kit on for the first time, knowing you're going to gonna go out and play against Australia was pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds like it, doesn't it, to be honest? There's there's no better series to to be involved in, in particular for your first one. And in terms of that tour itself, obviously the, the results didn't go England's way. In fact, I think Australia won all six of the matches, if I remember correctly. But in terms of the opportunity, in terms of those learnings, what do you say was the biggest lesson that you learned from that tour and that time with the England A side? Was there any particular takeaway or any particular lesson which you took away from the opportunity, which in hindsight you think, yeah, that was really useful in terms of putting me on the right path? Um, I think the first thing that springs to mind is a little bit of like, I had a bit of imposter syndrome a little bit on the tour and I was a little bit like, how have I got here? Am, am I good enough to be here? And all those sort of self-doubts crept in a little bit because um, all of a sudden you're sort of playing at that next level and um yeah, I think if I had my time again, knowing what I know now, I think I'd be in a better place to go and experience that now. Um, and yeah, I think I've I've had that sort of similar experience as, as a captain recently. And um, yeah, them self-doubts seem to creep in a little bit more when you're sort of playing at that next level. And like I said, I think I'd be able to be more equipped to deal with that now. But I think um, that's definitely the biggest lesson I've had is that... Um, nothing changes no matter who you're playing for a little bit it's obviously easier said than done but it's still the same ball it's still um it's still me behind the stumps like nothing really changes rather than overthinking the whole occasion um so yeah that's definitely something that if I had my time again I would try and be better at well I know this is going to come across as a rather profound question right for 20 past 11 on a Thursday morning right but in terms of that imposter syndrome Ellie where do you think that originates from? Because this is something which, again, is massively common. It's something which, to be honest, I've experienced. When I was doing commentary last year for Warwickshire, I was thinking, how on earth am I here, right? I'm just some normal fella from Warwick and probably shouldn't be here. And yet there I was. And you get this a lot in cricket. For example, when players make their, their county debuts or their international debuts, why did you have that that feeling of imposter syndrome, given the fact that... You've been an excellent captain for the Thunder runs and racked up all of these runs. 
Yeah, I think it comes from a little bit of, yeah, like a self-belief a little bit, which is something, again, I've always always struggled a little bit with and um, worked pretty hard on from a psych point of view. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's also quite natural. And again, it goes back to that acceptance piece, doesn't it? That like, I've listened to Josh Butler on podcasts say that he gets self-doubt and actually he's one of the best in the world. So like, just knowing that it's normal, um, again, will probably help me deal with that rather than, um, yeah, thinking it's 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 not normal and, and I need to try and fight against these feelings, just sort of accepting them and, and um, yeah, just finding strategies to deal with them, I think. Um, but yeah, I think I've definitely experienced it as a captain as well, like suddenly becoming Thunder captain and having to tell a Sophie Eccleston what to do is the best in the world. It's um, quite a strange feeling and it, it, yeah, you do feel like you're not in a position to do that, but actually um, it's, all, you, it's always you overthinking it. Like actually I'm still respected by these players and easier said than done, but um, it's often in your own mind. Well, it is, and it comes back actually to that concept of of overthinking because it is a cardinal sin, isn't it? And it's something which everybody is guilty of from time to time. Again, it's something which I do, whether that's on or or off a cricket field. You do overthink things, and you can get trapped in this vicious cycle. So, in terms of overthinking as a concept, I suppose, Ellie, is that something which has almost crept into your game at times? Do you think that could be a particular origin? for that feeling of imposter syndrome? Yeah, potentially. I think you see it so much. Um, I see it as a like a, as a player, as as a coach, and you see players so really, really, you can see the cogs turning in the head, like really, really overthinking. And actually, if you can try and remove that, often you find players play better. Um, and it's like, it's it's hard to say not don't think because you're always going to be thinking, but it's can you sort of simplify them thoughts and, and think about really relevant things or maybe just one thing rather than than focusing on all of the distraction and all the noise because you do get that and like I said self-doubt everything that's going on if you're playing in front of crowds there's so much distraction um but yeah can you simplify your thoughts as much as you can and and simplify that game plan well just to touch upon that I know we're going back onto the mental side of the game but in terms of that psychological aspect of the game then in terms of overthinking and almost that that feeling of self-doubt. Have you got any kind of mechanisms or, or strategies which you can employ to almost negate the effect of that? Yeah, I think one question I always ask myself is what job does the team need me to do now, especially with my batting? I think that's the discipline where I do tend to overthink and get inside my own head. And sometimes, um, yeah, like I said, so much going on, just asking yourself what job does the team need me to do now? And Sometimes might, that might not be the job I want to play. Sometimes I might want to be scoring quicker or um, playing my shots, but actually sometimes the team needs me to just dig in and, and hang around a little bit and, and that's okay. And uh, that's sort of what player I want to be is is really team first and, and doing, yeah, whatever that job that team needs. Um, I'm also quite big on just knowing what your strengths are as well. I think sometimes when, when the self-doubt comes in and... Um, yeah, when you are in a bit of a bad place mentally, I think it's really important to know what you're good at and remember what you're good at because um, that's often the stuff that's going to stand up under pressure, I think. So um, I'm pretty big on that as well. And to be honest, that's a, a very common answer. It is something which has come up on this podcast before, in particular for players who are, are going through a rough patch. They might watch highlights you know, of, of particular centuries or particular 50s or even just match-defining moments which they've been a part of just to act as a reminder 
of of what they can achieve on a cricket field because self-doubts and and that lack of self-belief at times is completely natural. It's something which happens to pretty much all cricketers because you do have these tremendous peaks and these incredible troughs as well. But it is important, I think, from time to time to just take that step back and remind yourself that you kind of belong here. And that's a very, very weird thing to almost think of because it sounds almost egotistical, doesn't it? At times, it sounds a little bit narcissistic, but there is a reason why you're in that team. There's a reason why you're in that position. There's a reason why you're leading the side. It is a difficult thing, and it's almost the the concept which is always out of reach, isn't it? We're still kind of trying to find the the answers to the psychological aspects of of cricket because it's something which is difficult to conquer. I mean, the, the rest of the game is difficult as well in terms of the technical sides and scoring lots of runs and taking lots of wickets. But if you can win the mental battle, you really are in a very, very good place in your cricket. And in terms of that psychology, Ellie, just to give your psychology pursuit a bit of a shout out, because I know you do stuff on, on social media and, of course, online. So in terms of that psychology opportunity and that particular side of, of your work, just to give it a bit of a shout out, where can we find your, your sports psychology outfit? Um, yeah, so my sports psych sort of business is uh, Unlock Sports Psychology. Um, I'm on Instagram and um, got a website as well. Um, so yeah, you you find me on Instagram or through my website. But um, yeah, just working a little bit with some one-to-one clients at the minute um, and doing some work with Sail Sharks rugby women as well, which has been pretty cool. So just doing some applied practice when as and when I can. Um, but yeah, happy to help. Well, fair enough. That sounds very exciting then in terms of a a pursuit for the future. And of course, folks, if you want to go and check out Unlock Sports Psychology, you can find the link to that in the podcast description below. But Ellie, just before we wrap up what's been an incredibly interesting episode of the podcast, I'm just looking, we've, we've always been chatting for an hour at this point in terms of the psychology of the game and of course the regional side as well. But in terms of the future, what are you hoping to achieve heading into the rest of this season and, of course, the years beyond? Because, as we mentioned beforehand, 2024 is probably the last year of the regional sides. After this, we've got eight Tier 1 sides and then we've got Tier 2 sides coming in in 2026 as a result of the advent of Project Darwin, the brand new kind of project of, of women's domestic cricket in this country. So, in terms of from both an individual perspective and a team perspective for the Thunder, what are your hopes and aspirations heading into the summer of 2024? Um, I think, obviously, the obvious answer, we're looking at silverware. Um, but to, in order to do that, we're going to have to win games of cricket and get to our, our final stage in both competitions. So I think getting to final stage, goal number one first. Um, and yeah, just trying to build on what we've, we've done on last year. But obviously, obviously looking towards silverware, I think... From an individual point of view, I've, I've still got aspirations to play for England. Um, but I understand that's going to come from really consistent performances with both the bat and the gloves at regional level and, and winning games for my team. So that's very much what I'm, I'm focused on. Well, Elliot, goes without saying, but obviously myself and everybody associated with the Counter Cricket Podcast are wishing yourself and the Thunder all the very best of luck heading into this summer. It's going to be a very, very exciting season across both competitions and yeah to be honest I can't wait for for both it's going to be very interesting to to see who does emerge on top because 
I mean, we saw last season, for example, the Blaze really emerging as a powerhouse as well. You can never discount my central sparks either. They're going to come back stronger in 2024. So it does have the makings of a very intriguing season. And in terms of those individual kind of hopes and aspirations as well, never give up on playing for England. You know, you are one of the best keepers in the country. The weight of runs will come. So keep that in mind. And yeah, obviously wishing yourself and everyone at the Thunder all the best of luck heading into the summer of 2024. But Ellie, I think that is a wonderful place to wrap up what's been a fascinating episode. So just before we wrap up today's recording and say our final goodbyes for the episode, do you have anything to plug or promote? Any social media channels, websites, businesses, anything like that? Uh, yeah, I'm on social. So Instagram's Ellie Threlkeld 7, I think. Um, Twitter is Ellie Threlkeld, I think. <laughs> Um, so yeah, you can find me on there. Um, other than that, all good. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Ellie. And of course, always welcome back here at the Counter Cricket Podcast in the future. It's been a wonderful discussion. And yes, I have just checked actually in terms of those socials spot on. So we'll leave the links to those particular social media channels in the podcast description below. But that is essentially it from us two here at the Counter Cricket Podcast for today's episode. To each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there, thank you ever so much for tuning in. And as always, guys, we'll see you on the next one.